You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. Today I'd like to talk to you about the question, does evil disprove God's existence? And we could break down this question into some sub-questions, further questions, including, does any evil whatsoever disprove God's existence? If there's just one person who has a toothache, is that sufficient for showing that an all-good, all-powerful God does not exist? Secondly, does unjustified evil disprove God's existence? And here I'm going to examine different defenses of God, the good of nature defense, the free will defense, the character building defense, and the punishment defense. Finally, I'll consider the question, could we know that there is unjustified evil? So before we get into this, what I would like to do is point out that in American law, at least, you're innocent until proven guilty. And so maybe we can extend the same uh, protection to the idea of God, that God is innocent until proven guilty. To put the case in another way, it's the, the burden of proof of showing that evil disproves God's existence is on the person who makes that claim. And so what I'm going to do is examine that claim, the idea that evil disproves God's existence. And until that claim is proven, then God would be innocent until proven guilty, and the problem of evil would not show that God does not exist. Now, there's really two versions of the problem of evil, and I'm going to talk about both versions. One version is called the logical problem of evil, and that's the idea that any suffering whatsoever disproves God's existence. If there's one person with a hangnail, that alone would show that God does not exist. The evidential problem of, the, of evil is that there's unjustified evil that disproves God's existence. So on this, according to this view, yes, it's possible that there could be some small evils, and that is compatible with God's existence. But clearly, there is unjustified evil in the world, and that does disprove God's existence. So first, the logical version of the problem of evil is very old. It goes back to uh, Greek philosophy, and it goes like this. If God is morally good, God would want to make a world without suffering. If God is all-powerful, he could make a world without suffering but obviously suffering does exist. Therefore, a God who is morally good and all-powerful does not exist. So this is the logical version of the problem of evil, and it doesn't rely on massive amounts of suffering. Really, any suffering at all could be enough to show that God does not exist. Any evil at all, even just a single toothache, disproves God's existence. Now, a question for this view is the following. Must a morally good being prevent all suffering that he or she has the power and opportunity to prevent? How would you answer that question? Well, is your dentist a good person? Maybe he or she is. Let's assume it's a she and let's assume she is a good person. Now, isn't it true that your dentist knows if you go to the dentist that what she does is going to cause you some suffering. It may not be great suffering, but if the dentist is picking away at your teeth or giving you a shot of Novocaine, it causes some suffering. 
And yet your dentist is justified in causing that suffering. So it seems then that a morally good being like your dentist does not have a duty to prevent all suffering that she has the power and opportunity to prevent. In other words, she could prevent the suffering that you endure through getting a Novocaine shot or through cleaning your teeth, but she doesn't do that. Now, why is she nevertheless still a good person? Well, presumably she has a very good reason for not preventing that suffering that you endure. In other words, it's better for you to have your teeth cleaned and have the shot of Novocaine than it is to let the cavity get bigger and bigger and worse and worse. And then you get a huge infection and then you die of an infection. In a similar way, maybe you've had a coach that really pushed you to do your best in athletics. I think back on a coach I had during my time in high school, cross country, and we would run 10 miles, 11 miles and run super hard and I'd want to quit. And he kept on pushing me and kept on making me work harder and harder. And good coaches do that. Now, my coach did have the power to prevent that suffering. My coach could have said to me, hey, take it easy. Just relax there. Don't worry about running hard. But we wanted to win victory. We wanted to be a good team. And of course, that's impossible to do unless we train really hard. And so good coaches sometimes have the power and opportunity to prevent the suffering of their athletes, but nevertheless encourage them and even make them do really strenuous workouts, despite the suffering that that, that endures. But the coaches are not morally bad as a result. Think too, perhaps, about your parents. If you had good parents, they sometimes got you in trouble for doing naughty things. And they could have not done that. No child enjoys getting in trouble. And so your parents had the power and opportunity to prevent the suffering that you went through and getting in trouble when you were a kid. And yet, if they're good parents, at least, they were justified in getting you in trouble. Those occasions helped you hopefully to grow and become a better person. And so it seems to follow that uh, moral goodness is compatible with not preventing all suffering. A morally good being prevents unjustified evils. Thus the claim, any evil at all disproves God's existence, is untrue. It is possible that a morally good God could not prevent some evils so long as they were justified. So this brings us to the second version of the problem of evil, the evidential version. So does unjustified evil disprove God's existence? Well, Aquinas provides a number of defenses of the idea of God's existence being compatible with evil. And one of them I'll call the good of nature defense. I was just reading an article in National Geographic and it said that lions are in danger of becoming extinct. Apparently there's only about 25,000 lions left in the world. Now imagine that you had in front of you two buttons. And if you press one button, lions would become extinct. And if you press the other button, lions would remain in existence. I don't know about you, but I would definitely press the button that kept lions in existence. I think it's a good thing that lions exist. And I think it would be a bad thing if all the lions became extinct. Now, to be a lion is to be a particular kind of creature. Lions are carnivores. And so for there to be the good of lions, there has to be, if they're gonna be carnivores, flesh that the lions eat. 
So if you're going to have lions, you're going to have, say, gazelles that are getting eaten. And so you might say nature has a kind of order. The good of the lion in being a carnivore is the evil of the gazelle in getting eaten. And so it's possible that God might allow some evils in order to secure the good of nature. Secondly, you might say that love is something good. For instance, you might say it's a good thing that people love each other and get married. And I would agree with you. I think that's right. Now, in order to have this good of loving each other and getting married, you need free will. In fact, in marriage ceremonies, the bride and the groom are often asked, did you come here freely? Are you freely undertaking this commitment? And freedom is necessary for us to make a free choice in marriage. Now, if we think of love as a good thing, love in general does involve freedom. In other words, if you're forced into being into a relationship with someone, well, that doesn't seem like it's a really loving relationship. If you're going to have a loving relationship, it seems like both parties have to freely be choosing to have that relationship. So we might agree love is a good thing and love presupposes freedom. But if we have freedom, we also have the possibility of using our freedom not only to love, but also not to love. We can misuse our freedom. And so it's possible that God might allow some evils in order to secure the good of free will. Now, why not blame God for the misuse of free will? Well, you certainly could do that, but I'm not sure that really makes sense. Imagine today I get into uh, my car and I drive my car over a bunch of people and kill them. Would it make sense to blame the car company for my actions? Well, unless there was some sort of defect in my car, the brakes weren't working right or something, if I just freely chose to run over people, well, that's on me. It wouldn't make any sense at all to blame the car company for my misuse of a car. And in a similar way, if I misuse my free will, it doesn't really make any sense to blame God, the one who created my free will and gave me my free will. So it's possible that God allows some evils in order to secure the good of free will. Another good is character. We admire courageous people. We admire compassionate people. To have a good character is something that is a great good that distinguishes excellent human beings from dogs, plants, and rocks. And in order to have excellent character, we need free will. And we also need a challenging environment that gives us opportunities to exercise and grow in character. If we're gonna have good character, we have to have free will, we have to have a challenging environment. And this brings with it the possibility of some evils arising. So it's possible that God might allow some evils in order to secure the good of character building. Finally, let me talk about the punishment defense. Just punishments are good. Just punishments, for instance, protect the community from the wrongdoer. When a killer is taken off the streets, that protects the whole community from that killer continuing to rampage and do evil deeds. So it's a good thing that people who murder other people are put in jail. Just punishments also deter potential wrongdoers. Good people would still not kill and steal 
even if the law, if there were no police officers and no law enforcement. But there are some people who are only deterred from stealing and killing and doing other horrible things because they fear punishment. They fear getting arrested. They fear going to jail. Just punishments are good because they deter potential wrongdoers. Just punishments can also help rehabilitate the wrongdoer. In some cases, when someone gets in trouble, the person learns a lesson. They change their lives. They turn things around and they grow. And so a just punishment can, in some cases, rehabilitate the wrongdoer, and that is certainly something good. Just punishments also reestablish the order of justice that the wrongdoer upset in doing wrong. So if somebody steals your car, that is gonna be something that uh, presumably you don't like. And if the police catch the person and force the person to give your car back, the criminal, the thief is not gonna like that. But it's good that you have your car back. And it's good therefore that part of the punishment that's inflicted on the criminal is that they're forced to return the stolen property. So just punishments reestablish the order of justice that the wrongdoer upset in wrongdoing and that is a good thing. So it's possible that God might allow some evils in order to secure the goods of just punishment. Now, this punishment defense doesn't uh, clearly apply to all cases because of course there are sometimes innocent people who suffer. So this defense does not justify all evil. And we can put all these together in a kind of combination defense. So imagine um, a pie and maybe the pie represents all the evil that exists. Well, you might say that it's possible that God might allow some evils in order to preserve the good of nature. So that's like one piece of the pie. And it's possible that God might allow some other evils in order to secure the good of free will. That's another piece of the pie. And it's possible that God might allow still some other evils in order to secure the good of character building. And it's possible that God might allow some other amount of evil in order to secure the good of just punishment. And so the question that we might ask is, does this account for all the evil that exists? Or are there some evils that are not accounted for by any of these four ways? Is there a piece of the pie that is not taken care of, you might say, by these different defenses? Are there evils that are not covered by any of these defenses? Well, that's a good question. And to answer that question, we'd have to really try to assess the goods and evils together. And here I want to draw on the work of the philosopher William Lane Craig. Craig points out, we are not in a good position to assess the probability of whether God has a morally sufficient reason for the evils that occur. We don't know the entire universe. We don't fully know the past. We certainly don't know the future. And so it's very difficult to say that a particular evil was not allowed for a good reason. Things that might appear to us at first glance to be evils that have no good reason for them, uh, we might later come to the conclusion that there actually was a good reason for them. And so we might turn now to the book of Job. How much evil is too much and why? Job questions God and says, well, why was all this allowed? And God's answer to Job is basically to question Job back. 
and to say, well, where were you when I laid the foundation of the world? How do you know that there's too much evil? How could we know that this much is too much? A true comparison of evils and goods requires a true knowledge of all the evils and goods involved. But this would require a knowledge of all times, past, present, and future, as well as a knowledge of the entire universe. But there seems to be only one possible being that could have all that, a perfect knowledge of all goods and all evils, a perfect knowledge of past, present, and future, and how all these goods and evils are connected, and that being is God. So really only God could be in a position to know that there is unjustified evil. Craig points out further that Christian faith entails doctrines that increase the probability of the coexistence of God and evil. He notes that the chief purpose of life is not happiness, but the knowledge and love of God. So the Christian view is that life is not for the sake of happiness, at least not for the sake of happiness understood as just bodily pleasure, but that the ultimate purpose of life is love, love of God and love of neighbor. And of course, we can't really have love of God or love of neighbor without knowledge. We can't love what we don't know. And so if we think of the purpose of our lives, not in terms of pleasure and happiness understood in that sense, but rather as the knowledge and love of God, that leads us to think about the problem of evil in a different way. The Christian faith teaches that mankind is in a state of rebellion against God and his purpose, and that this knowledge of God spills over into eternal life. So if mankind is in a state of rebellion, then punishment is something that is just and appropriate. And if the knowledge of God and the love of God isn't simply for this life, but continues into eternal life, that also increases the probability of the coexistence of God and evil. Because if all we were talking about was this life, well, then it's clear that there are some people who suffer unjustifiably in this life. But if there is a life to come, then that may change the overall assessment of whether it was worthwhile to go through the suffering that we experience in this life. Craig also notes that the knowledge of God is a incommensurable good. What he means is it's, it's such a great good that it can't be compared to anything else in this life. Now, you may have had the experience in your own life of only later discovering meaning in your own suffering. Have you ever undergone suffering that seemed at the time totally worthless, but later you saw that the suffering uh, as leading to something worthwhile, such that you would have chosen to undergo the suffering in order to obtain the benefit? So maybe when you were in high school, you went through some terrible suffering, your girlfriend or boyfriend broke up with you and it was made you really sad and you thought this was terrible. And at the time you thought this was just totally worthless suffering. But then maybe later you realized that what you went through actually helped you and benefited you. And that maybe you met your spouse and you would have never married your spouse and had this good relationship with your spouse if you hadn't undergone the suffering of your breakup, because it was only through that suffering that you really reassessed what you were looking for in a boyfriend or girlfriend and were able to, you know, find this great spouse that you have now. So that's a very common experience, right, where people undergo suffering and at the time they think it's worthless, but only later can they see the real benefit that accrued to them 
through their suffering. And then only in hindsight could they say, I'm glad that I went through that suffering. I would choose to go through that again, given the benefit that I received. Could this not happen again? Could this not happen with other suffering that we endure? Craig also argues that part of the problem of evil isn't so much logical, but rather emotional. He says that, quote, I think that most people who reject God because of the evil in the world don't really do so because of intellectual difficulties. Rather, it's an emotional problem. They just don't like a God who would permit them or others to suffer, and therefore they want nothing to do with him. So Craig calls this the emotional problem of evil. And you can see why people would feel this way, that when we're, especially when we're going through suffering, we want to blame someone, and God seems like a good person to blame for the suffering that we're going through or that those that we love are going through. Now, Craig thinks that God in Christ is the answer to this emotional problem of evil. He says, if God does not exist, then we are lost without hope in a life filled with gratuitous and unredeemed suffering. God is the final answer to the problem of evil, for he redeems us from evil and takes us into an everlasting joy of an incommensurable good, namely fellowship with God himself. So Craig believes, of course, that Christ is the one who saves us from the ultimate suffering, the suffering of being eternally separated from God, and that Christ himself does this by means of his own suffering. Christ redeems suffering in part by making suffering so important in terms of helping other people. In the Christian view, the suffering of Jesus was maximal, at least that's what Aquinas thought. He thought that Jesus underwent the greatest of all possible suffering. And he, went under, he underwent this greatest of all possible suffering in order to achieve the greatest of all possible goods, namely eternal happiness for all those who are saved. And so on the Christian view, at least, God does not ignore suffering, but God uses suffering for a greater good. And just as the suffering of Jesus was for the sake of this great good of perfect happiness with God, so too the suffering of anyone on earth can be joined to the suffering of Christ in terms of promoting that ultimate good. Now, what is that ultimate good? Well, that ultimate good is really heaven. And what is heaven? Well, it's, you might say, the ultimate and lasting loving relationships. It is loving God perfectly and being loved by God perfectly. It's loving other human beings and loving yourself perfectly and being loved by other human beings and by yourself perfectly. It's objective flourishing. It's getting the subjective desires of your heart. So heaven, at least on the Christian view, is absolute perfect happiness. And heaven is everlasting. No one goes to heaven and then loses heaven. So we have perfect happiness. Now, given that heaven is everlasting, it is a kind of joy and a kind of perfection that radically overwhelms any possible suffering that we could have here on earth. So imagine the very worst possible suffering you could have here on earth. Say it's, um, you know, you're getting tortured. Well, that's obviously, you know, unbearably bad suffering. So imagine somebody who's tortured their entire life. Okay, so human beings, you know, live roughly 80 years, but let's say the person lives a super long time, so they live 120 years. 
and they're getting tortured every day. Well, that's maximal human suffering. But if we compare that to the joy of heaven, it is overwhelmingly the case that the joy of heaven is greater than that. So if we think of maximal suffering as a 10 out of 10 in suffering, maximum joy would be a 10 out of 10 in terms of joy. And if you multiply the intensity of the suffering by the duration of the suffering, you get a kind of number. So 10 out of 10 in terms of suffering times 120 years. And the same thing would be true of heaven, right? 10 out of 10 in terms of joy, but it's multiplied not by 120 years or by 120 million years or even by 120 billion years but by everlasting time. And so the suffering, even the very worst possible human suffering ends up in terms of an overall comparison to be very minute in comparison to the joy of heaven. At least that's what Aquinas says. And remember that the argument from evil is an argument about inconsistency, that it's inconsistent to hold both that God is all good and also that God could sometimes allow suffering for the sake of some good. But if heaven exists, then part of what we have to take into account in terms of the good that God might be seeking would be including our perfect happiness, not just here on earth, which of course is impossible, but in the life to come. So if these arguments are correct, then God is innocent because not proven guilty. The case against God from evil does not succeed in showing that it's impossible that God exists and that this existence is compatible with there being evil in the world. And if that's right, then Aquinas has been able to show the reasonable faith, the faithful reason that he exercised throughout his life. So this brings us to the end of our conversations about Aquinas. We talked a lot about God's existence in earlier lectures and characteristics of God, the divine will, the divine knowledge. We talked about the idea that Aquinas does not contradict himself in holding that God does not have a body, and yet that Jesus is God. And finally, today, I tried to give various reasons, mostly from Thomas, but also from some others, to believe that the existence of evil does not show that it's impossible that God exists. But part of the good of philosophy is the good of ongoing conversations and ongoing thought. So I hope that these lectures of mine have been an occasion for you to think about these ultimate questions. Because at the end of the day, we're all philosophers. And our choice is really whether we're gonna think well or think badly. And so hopefully this engagement has been a chance for us to think more carefully about these issues of ultimate importance. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers.